0: Let's um, turn in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel. We're going to be in Chapter 10, continuing on through this Gospel. I titled this morning's message, Jesus' Ministry in Perea. And so let's open in prayer. Father, I lift up this time. I lift up, uh, Lord, your word. Uh, Lord, your word is powerful. Your word speaks for itself. It says what it says, and it means what it means. And we simply approach your word this morning in faith, believing that these are the very words of God, words that are spoken to us, that we can walk away today, we can leave this place today knowing that we actually heard the voice of God. God, would you speak into our hearts your truth this morning? Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon your church? Those that are here in this place and those that are even listening live online, Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon your church today? Would you use us, Lord, to your glory? And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus had spent two years of his ministry, three and a half years in total of ministry here on earth. Two of those years he spent in this region of Galilee. This is the northern part of Israel. And we read a few weeks back about the transfiguration of Jesus when he went up on the mount with Peter, James, and John and transfigured himself before them. This was, we might say, a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. His focus was now going to be turned towards the cross. Jesus was now set towards the cross and going to Jerusalem. And so we come to this 10th chapter this morning where Jesus is going to leave this small town of Capernaum uh, that's located there in Galilee. And he's going to begin his journey southward towards Jerusalem. He's going to take a route though coming back and possibly because he's trying to avoid a mass crowd. Though I don't know that that worked. (laughs) But he comes down and he makes his way to the east side of the Jordan River. He takes another route along that east side. And he's traveling through this region called Perea. Now Perea means by by name, the country beyond. We find in this 10th chapter a turning point Uh, Jesus leaving two years of ministry there in Galilee and now making his way towards the cross this cross was only four months away approximately four months away till Jesus would go to the cross in this tenth chapter it's a chapter really in Mark's gospel anyway that speaks about the things that were done in Perea, and also in Judea, he went back and forth. But today, there's actually seven different events, we might say, that happen in this chapter. We're going to look at three of them this morning. We're going to see in the first part of this chapter that Jesus is once again going to be confronted by the Pharisees. We see that in verses 1 to 12. Jesus also is going to bless the little children that were brought to him in verses 13 to 16. And then Jesus is going to speak to what is referred to as the rich young ruler. He's going to speak to this man about salvation. And so that's what we're going to cover this morning in this 10th chapter. So look at your Bibles at verse 1. Jesus now is going to be confronted once again by the Pharisees these are the religious leaders by the way of Israel then Jesus arose from there he's speaking about Capernaum and he came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan and we're told that multitudes gathered to him again And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. Now, Matthew's gospel of this same account gives us a couple of other details. It tells us that as Jesus traveled, it doesn't just say multitudes gathered. It says great multitudes followed after Jesus. It also tells us that not only did Jesus teach them, when, he, when these multitudes came to him. But it says that he healed them there. And so Jesus' ministry, even though he was traveling now towards the cross, towards Jerusalem, still was one of teaching and healing and ministering to the people. That's what amazes me. Put yourself... If you could, and I don't know that we could, but put yourself in the place of knowing that you were set on going to the cross. You were going to die on that cross. And what's amazing to me is Jesus, even though his focus was turning away from that that time of ministry in Galilee, now setting his focus on the cross in Jerusalem, he kept teaching. He kept ministering to the people. He didn't stop. But I don't know that that would be me. If I knew that I was awaiting a death sentence, I think that I might just be caught up into everything that 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 meant and what that was going to look like. But here's Jesus still teaching and still ministering to the people. Still showing compassion towards the people the sick, the hurting, the lost. He was, I I think it was just because it was His very nature. It was what Jesus was. It was who He was. He was a God of compassion. He was full of mercy. And He was full of love towards mankind. But you see, that's what we should be as Christians. We also should respond even when things are difficult, even when things in life are really heightened and we've got a lot of trials and tribulations and so often our focus is off. We get caught up in the moment. We're surrounded by the issues around us. And we, in a sense, we, we kind of drop our guard. My prayer is that the church is not dropping their guard during this time. But that we're looking for opportunities. It's who we are as Christians. It's not what just happens here at church on Sundays. It's what happens with us every day of the week. It's, It's who we are. It's what we should be. We have a message of hope. We have something to share with those people in this world that are lost and without hope. We're told... That Jesus taught them again. This was something that Jesus regularly did. He taught the people. He discipled those who followed after Him. Paul wrote in Romans 10-17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's why we are diligent or at least should be diligent about picking up our Bibles so that our faith would grow. We need to be taught. We need to hear the voice of God. We come to verse 2. And it's a, it, it, this is a difficult actually portion of scripture for a number of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons and the main reasons because it deals with the issue of divorce. I know that there are many probably even in this room that have been touched by divorce in some way whether or not it's directly something that you have experienced or indirectly from some family member, we have all been affected by divorce. But I want to also make the point that Jesus right now is not going to get into a theological debate about the issue of divorce, but he's going to confront these Pharisees that were really using it for an opportunity. Look what it says. The Pharisees came and they asked Jesus, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then we're told, Testing him. The Pharisees had an agenda, they knew what they were. Seeking to do. They didn't really even care. About the theological implications. What they were wanting to do. Is they were wanting to trap Jesus. They were wanting to pose a question to him. That they might trap him. That they might test him. In this question. The. Pharisees brought to Jesus, it was over the issue of marriage and divorce. And the reason why they used this particular question was because in the day there was a great divide. We might call it a great divide over theological issues. There was a great divide between a couple of rabbis of the day that were well known amongst the people. And they had different interpretations in regards to marriage and divorce. Two of those well-known rabbis of the day were Shimei and Hillel. Both of them having different interpretations of what the law of Moses said in regards to divorce. These Pharisees at this moment, at this time... They were thinking, if Jesus sides with one or the other, if he gets in one camp or the other, goes with one, uh, one of, the, uh, of the rabbis or the other rabbis, then we can find a way to trap him. It's really hard to trap the Son of God in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in coming to him in that way. Matthew adds to this, it says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, and this is what's added on to this, for just any reason? Is it lawful to divorce for any reason? Well, that's what Rabbi Hillel taught, that the law permitted somebody to divorce their wife or to to divorce for any reason. But notice that Jesus doesn't answer these Pharisees directly back. We read in verse 3, and Jesus answered and said to them, he doesn't answer the question directly, but he answers and says to them, what did Moses command you? They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And of course, Jesus in his wisdom refers these Pharisees uh, back to the law. He takes them back to what they knew in their law out of Deuteronomy chapter 24. There's just four verses that speak of this issue here. And this is how it reads. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes uh, another man's wife, If the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land, which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Now, in those four verses, it is pretty straightforward. It's with the exception of verse 1. Verse 1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because... He has found some uncleanness in her. You see, those were the words that became the debate between, uh, between these theological schools of the day. It became the day, uh, debate over interpretation of what it means if this woman were to be found with some uncleanness in her. Nothing, though, in the law of God ever condoned divorce. It was never part of the law that God gave away for divorce. It it only regulated. It regulated divorce when it took place. There were regulations that were there, things that people should heed. If it came to divorce, here's the things that you should heed these Pharisees though they were trying to trap Jesus in the debate Hillel this rabbi his interpretation of this uncleanness in her could refer to what we read for any reason uh, why a wife could uh, or why a husband could write a certificate of a divorce for any reason at all. As a matter of fact, he could just, for anything, he could just say, you know what, we're done. And, and in the culture of the day, even where women at the time were in a place really of serving to their husband, they weren't in equality in the eyes of these men. They could just simply say, we're done. And just seek a certificate of divorce. Well, Hillel thought that that was the proper interpretation. Shimei believed that the law taught that uncleanliness was adultery and was the only legitimate reason for a divorce. What the Pharisees, though, wanted is they wanted to put Jesus in the middle of the debate. They wanted to get him into the debate They were hoping that this would lead to a point at which they could say, gotcha, Jesus, we got you. You got on one side or the other, and we have a case against you. That's what they were hoping for. But Jesus wasn't going to get trapped in man's opinions. He wasn't going to uh, allow man's opinions uh, to uh, trap him. And that's really what they were doing. Instead, what he does is he turns to these Pharisees, he he turns them back to their scripture, and look at verse 5. Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses wrote you this precept. That's the issue. That's what Jesus took them back to. It was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses wrote you a precept. The Pharisees, in essence, were saying that Moses' command allowed divorce as long as a certificate of divorce was given. If you, you, know, you, you give the certificate, it's legitimate, it's okay. Okay. Jesus says, Moses permitted, and that's an important word, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her, but it was because of the hardness of your heart that he wrote this. He wrote this precept because of the hardness of your heart. You see, God never designed marriage to start and then end before death do you part. It was never in God's design. From the very beginning, God intended that a man and a woman would come together until death do you part. But the problem is, and it's today the same way, that many of marriages have ended for a wrong reason they end because there's hardness of heart there's a person one or both that are hard-hearted and what hard-heartedness is is when a heart becomes inflexible it's a heart that insists upon having its own way it's during this time of Hard-heartedness that that leads to a place where both or one are saying this is irreconcilable. We we can't do this. it's, it's not going to happen. These conflicts, the hurts, the anger become so strong and so deep that the couple finds it impossible for the problem to be worked out. The hard heart though, stands in contrast to a softened heart, to a flexible heart, to one that is gentle, humble, one that is compassionate, one that is open, that is still willing to forgive. It has feelings for the other spouse, the other person, the, the feelings for their joy and their hurts. It still cares about what the other one is feeling. And you see, this is the kind of heart that God can work with. When there's a hard heart, and there's a heart that's inflexible, unwilling, God can't press beyond that. Sometimes it's only one heart that's that way. Other times it's both hearts in the marriage that are that way. Unwilling unwilling to compromise and in that case god's unable to work jesus though here he takes them back he takes them back to genesis 2 where god created adam and eve look at verse 6 in your bibles from he says but from the beginning of the creation god made them male and female For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. You see how what Jesus is doing with these religious leaders? He's not getting caught up into their debate. He's simply taking them back to the scriptures. What they should know. What they should have already known. I'm not going to be exhaustive this morning on this issue of divorce. Uh, That's not what really what's happening here with Jesus. Uh, That could be for another study, but it's not going to be exhaustive. But I want to share with you a few things. Yes, the law of Moses permitted divorce, but God's design from the very beginning was that when a man and woman became one flesh that that bond marriage would remain forever that's God's design that when two people are joined together they're in an essence they are being glued together they're being glued together never to be separated from each other that's the way God designed a marriage to be Jesus said, from the beginning of creation, this was God's intention for marriage. And God's design always works best. You follow God's design, and it always works best. It always works. Marriage works when we follow God's design. God's design involves two people coming together in a deep, loving, and intimate and spiritual and physical and an emotional union with each other. And nothing should be able to break that bond. My dad, he's a woodworker. He loves to do wood projects. And quite often when I'm working with him on something he'll say to me why don't you just glue it? Have you ever glued two pieces of wood together with you know wood glue? And let them set for a while? Clamp them together? Let them set for a while? And then try to get them apart? And you you know what my dad would say you know what if you glue it together it's gonna you'll have to rip the whole thing apart but you're probably not going to break that glue. That's what God's design is for marriage. That, that this bond that we have would never be separated by man. He says in verse 9. Therefore, because of what he just said in verses 6 to 8. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate God and the work of the Holy Spirit in hearts is what keeps a marriage together next Sunday is it I'll be married 40 years and I can tell you that I've been married for 40 years not because I'm the best husband in Winston here It's all because of what God has done and is doing and is keeping me in my marriage. It's God. It's His Holy Spirit. It's Him. And I hope that any one of us that are married here this morning, that that's where our confidence lies. It's in what He is able to do in keeping me, what He's able to do in me, that my marriage will... Be a great marriage, a lasting marriage. We see that in verse ten, and the disciples did this quite often. They would hear Jesus have these kind of dialogues, and then it's almost like they wait until they get in the house. So they they, they come to this house in verse ten, uh, with his disciples, and they ask Jesus again about the same matter. Now, what that tells me is that the disciples themselves were actually a little bit confused about this issue that Jesus was talking about, divorce. They knew the theological arguments that were out there. They knew how people differed. Just like today, there are a lot of churches, a lot of pastors, people have different ideas about divorce and what that means. Some people, you know, they, they put it up there like it's the unpardonable sin. It could never be forgiven. You know. And, and that's not what I see in Scripture. But the disciples, they come to Jesus in this house and they ask Him again about the same manner. So Jesus says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another... She commits adultery. Now, at face value, and just reading what we read there, we would think, wow, I mean uh, there's no way out. There's uh, adultery. there's there's no chance, there's no way out of any of this. No matter what takes place in a marriage. But I believe that there are provisions. Matthew's account of this same, what we're reading here, puts it this way. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and then it puts this in there, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. He adds that in about sexual immorality. Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 32. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, which is fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who divorced commits adultery. Very clear. Jesus made it very clear. Sexual immorality is, we could say, a reason by which a person could say this marriage is ended. This union has been broken. Fornication has taken place. Illicit sex has taken place. You can actually find this sexual immorality. You can find it 38 times in 17 verses in the New Testament. If you want to do a study about sexual immorality. But I believe that God's design for marriage. Is always about forgiveness. And it's always about reconciliation. God always wants to keep, I believe, a marriage together, and I would add to this: no matter what, some of you, I know, have been in, in, in a marriage that has ended this way, or in the middle of a marriage that you know. And I know those situations. And as a pastor, uh, you know, when I think of it, no matter what, those are hard words. But but what I say is, is that, you know, God knows the heart. He knows the individuals. And I and I believe that this allowance uh, for sexual immorality or adultery within marriage, that it's not a mandated thing. In other words, God doesn't say if that's happened in your marriage, then you have to divorce. It's mandated that you divorce. The union's been broken. No, but God, because God is about forgiveness and reconciliation. And I have firsthand account of being with individuals, counseling with individuals, where I've seen that God has restored and brought a marriage back together. It was God's doing. But that does not mean that every marriage that has a situation that happens like this, that it will end that way. And what I would want to say to all of us that have found ourselves in that place in a marriage is that God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's ability to to compel you forward in in your walk with him, nothing is ever held back, even through divorce. I don't believe that divorce is the ultimate sin that now you're just on the shelf. You're you're, you're no longer useful by God. God forgives even in those things. The counsel that I give quite often to couples that are struggling in marriage for any reason, whatever it might be, would be to search their hearts. Search their heart. Let God have His way in your heart. Let God do what He does best, and that's change our hearts. And allow God to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation, if that's possible. I've seen God glorified in this situation where he's brought a couple back together but it's not always the case it doesn't always end that way and so I want to make that that emphasis we look at what's taking place here and again there's lots that could be and I, and I knew when I went into this there's a lot that could be said on this subject and other things that could be said. I just want to leave you with this. I believe that there are two ways in which I believe that a, a divorce could take place. And it would be allowed in the eyes of God. One of them is through adultery. The other one is if if there's an unbelieving spouse that basically abandons the other spouse. And is just leaves. Leaves the marriage. Divorces that I believe that there is a freedom that God gives for that person to remarry. So, with that said, let's move on now to the next instance in verse 13. And we read, Then they, and this they here is some of the people that were there uh, in that house, they brought little children to Jesus. Luke adds that They brought infants. And so we know that these were small little children that were being brought to Jesus. And it says that he might touch them. Matthew says that he might put his hands on them and pray. And so we get a sense of what's taking place here. Here's these parents or these people that are bringing these small children to Jesus in this house. That that he might bless them. That he might pray for them. But look at the second part of verse 13. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. He rebuked them. They rebuked the people that were bringing these little children to Jesus. This is not something, by the way, you want to do in front of Jesus. Though they've done it before... It, it, but we've also learned that you know lessons learned are not always learned the first time. We've come to know that, haven't we? Sometimes it takes one, two, it takes a lot of time. Before we learn these lessons, here these disciples are rebuking the people, not Jesus, but rebuking the people that brought the children to Jesus. Rebuke, by the way, is a harsh word. It's a strong word. And you would think that the disciples would have learned something about Jesus' heart for children back in chapter 9. Just one chapter before this. Remember this is in chronological order. In verse 36, when Jesus took a, a little child and he set him into the midst of the disciples, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus already gave him a lesson using little children as an example. Again, in the disciples' minds, old habits are hard to break. Old habits for us, quite often, are hard to break. It could be that the disciples, as well as many people in the day, they had a kind of a a different view about children. Children were to be seen and not necessarily heard. They were to be really, you know, there was this kind of, you know, with the children in the house. You know, and the disciples feeling you know like they're doing the normal thing that they do, rebuking the people for bringing these little children to Jesus. We don't have time for this. There's other things of greater importance than this. Than bringing, there's adults here that need to be ministered to. These little children, no. That's not God's perspective. It's not God's perspective then. It's not God's perspective for today. When our children come to church. We have children in here today. We, we, we take them to Sunday school because we want to teach them. We want to invest within them. These are gifts that God gave to us. And, and it's the next generation that's coming up. And we need to invest within children. That's the heart of our Lord. That's a, His heart Towards children, something that even his own disciples didn't see. In God's perspective, it sees little children that were closer to the kingdom of God than the adults. They were closer to the kingdom of God than the adults. These are the ones in essence, that Jesus is saying that we need to invest in. We need to teach our children the Word of God. We need to teach them at their level so they can understand it. Our children, adults, our children are the next generation of Christians. What are they going to be? What are they going to be like? What are we leaving behind? Jesus saw the importance of that. But we're told that these disciples, though they had a lesson here, though they rebuked them, you know, they, they probably they were still learning this lesson about the very nature of Jesus, how compassionate he was. It didn't matter if you were a little child an adult, somebody that was sick, a woman caught an adult. Our Lord was a compassionate God towards all. If this world right now, if the, if the people in the United States would just know the heart of our Lord, we wouldn't have all this stuff going on in all the cities right now. That God is not a respecter of persons. God doesn't look at one race about, you, know, you know, none of this. The problem is you gotta. You, if people don't know Christ and don't know His nature and know who He is and don't know the God of the Bible, then what do you do? Look what it says in verse 14. When Jesus saw it, when Jesus observed His disciples what they had done, it says that He was greatly displeased And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. It says that he was greatly displeased. Another way that we could put this is that Jesus was angry. He was angry, he was indignant over what his disciples were doing and rebuking these people. For bringing these children. It displeased the Lord what they were doing. And, and yes, Jesus does get angry. You know, sometimes people say. you oh, know, Jesus never got angry. You know? No, he gets angry and righteous anger when he sees and, and here he was greatly displeased with them. You see, Jesus, by his very nature, is full of compassion and mercy. He's full of love. His love is unconditional and it's sacrificial. But that's not always where our hearts are at. We're not always merciful. We're not always loving in that way towards other people. And that's what was happening here. They, what, what they were exhibiting and rebuking these people, Jesus' compassion... His very nature said that's not who I am. That's not who you should be. It reminds me of when Jesus fed those 4,000. Remember back in chapter 8 the 4,000 being fed? And Jesus said to his disciples on that day. As he saw these 4,000 plus people out there. He says, I have compassion on the multitude. He's saying that to his disciples. Because they have continued with me for three days and they've had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way. The disciples weren't even thinking of that. And here's our loving Jesus there, full of compassion, saying, we need to feed these people. His disciples simply said, how can we satisfy these people, Jesus, with bread in this wilderness? Where are we going to get it, Jesus? And, And Jesus, again, had to tell them it was because of the hardness of their heart. Let the little children come to me, Jesus says, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on in verse 15, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms and he laid hands on them and he blessed them. Just get that picture of Jesus in that house, taking these children, laying hands on them, and begins to pray for them. The disciples are getting another lesson here. A lesson that Jesus is showing them by example. Jesus says, just like a little child, a trusting child, a believing child, one that has not yet become cynical... Like we do as we get older. You know, these, you know, they're the ones that are ready to receive the kingdom of God. They're the ones that are in the right place. You see, as parents, most of us that, as parents have had those times where our children, they willingly jumped into our arms. Don't you love that? We love it. They stand on that wall, they stand on that bed, and they leap into your arms, and they don't think anything about it. And we love it. And then they grow up, and then they say, "No way! I'm not jumping. In. You're gonna drop me. You'll drop me if I jump in here. Your You're not gonna catch me." Things begin to change as we get older. For such is the kingdom of God. That mind of a child. Jesus laying his hands on them and praying for them and blessing these children. What an example that our Lord set before them and before us. And then Jesus gets up from that place. I don't know the time frame between here. But he gets up from this place and we read in verse 17 now as he was going on the road he's no longer in the house now he's on a road he's walking with his disciples Matthew's Gospel says now behold whenever you see that word now behold or, or out of nowhere a man comes running to Jesus he kneels down before Jesus and he asks him he says good teacher or Good master, another translation reads. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Luke's gospel says that it was a certain ruler that came to Jesus. It also tells us that he was a young man. And that he also had great possessions. It's why we call this the rich young ruler. This was the kind of man that he was. He was a ruler. He was young. And he was wealthy. He comes running to Jesus. He kneels down in respect. Before Jesus. He kneels before him. And he's coming with a question. He's interested in knowing future things. What's going to happen to me in the future? How can I? Inherit eternal life. When I read this, I think, what a great question. Isn't that the best kind of a question anyone could walk up to you and ask? Could you please tell me how I could have eternal life? Well, sure. Let's sit down. Let's open the Bible. Yes. What a great question. That's right on point. That's getting right to the nitty gritty of the best questions you could ever ask. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? A witnessing opportunity before our Lord. He comes out of the blue. But here's the problem. This is something that Jesus picked up on that maybe we wouldn't. He says, what shall I do? Do you see that? What shall I do, he says to Jesus, that I may inherit eternal life? That's the misconception that the rich young ruler had. What can I do? That I could have eternal life. How many of you have thought that in your past before you knew Christ? Oh, I keep the Ten Commandments. I do that. I do, I do. You know, we have all this list of all these things that I've done for God. God says, "I don't want any of what you've done for me. I want you to receive what I've done for you." Paul wrote in Titus three five that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to His mercy that He saved us. Paul in Ephesians 2 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not that of yourself. It's the gift of God. We know those scriptures, or at least we should. Our salvation is not based on what I can do for God, but what He has done for me. So Jesus says to the rich young ruler, verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one and that is God the first thing Jesus wants to reveal to this man that comes with this inquiry about eternal life is he wants him to know who he's speaking to Jesus is not saying that he wasn't good he's not saying that to the young man that he wasn't good but he was saying that you need to know that the one you are speaking to is God. That's what you need to realize now. I'm not just a good teacher, but I'm God in flesh. Jesus, in John eight twenty four, was speaking to some Pharisees one day. And he said this to them, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You see, how important is it for us to know who Jesus is, to really know the Jesus of the Bible? He's not just a prophet, a good man, you know, somebody like, you know, no, he's God in flesh jesus says unless you believe that i am he you will die in your sin then jesus does something that many of us may not have done in this witnessing opportunity we may not have done it this way he uses the law to reveal his heart and his need for forgiveness Jesus uses the law to do that. He says in verse 19, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. And do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 5. To this rich young ruler, he's now turning and using the law in answering this question about eternal life the command he gives or the commands that he gives to this man they all had to do with the part of the Ten Commandments that had to do with the relationship that man has with others and he answered the rich young ruler did he answered Jesus and he says Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth, there he got something else wrong, because probably if he really were to soul search himself, he'd be able to say, "No, I haven't It'd be like you saying, and let me ask, how many of you have kept all the Ten Commandments perfectly? Raise your hand and We probably all No, I can't raise my hand. I've broken, actually I've broken all of them. In some way. Jesus knew that. And he knew his heart. The problem is the rich young ruler. And his own self. His own pride, really, believed that he had. That I've kept the Ten Commandments. Maybe some of you have said that in times past. I've asked and witnessed to a lot of people that have told me, when I've asked them where they're going to go when they die, and they say, well, I go to heaven. Why? Why well, keep the Ten Commandments? Are, are you saying that you keep the Ten Commandments to their fullest extent? Or are you saying that you try to keep the Ten Commandments? That's more probably what they're saying. But in their mind, why well, keep, keep the Ten Commandments? We know that that will never work with God. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. Jesus looks at him. Look at verse 21. Jesus uh, looks at him. And and this might be something uh, that we would not do also in witnessing. We might not do it the way Jesus did it here. But look what he does. Then Jesus, looking at the rich young ruler, where first off, I want you to note that it says that he loved him. Important. Underline it. He loved him. Because he's a God of love. He loved this young man. And he said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way. Sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow Me. Doesn't sound like good witnessing ethics, does it? To to try and tell somebody these demands when they don't even know Christ yet. Give to the poor. And and then you'll have to to sell what you have and give it to the poor. On the surface, it, it doesn't seem like The right way to approach the question. If you'll just pray with me, that's all you need to do. You can go to heaven. The problem is, and it's not a problem, but Jesus knew the heart. He knew what was going on inside of this young man. He wasn't preaching works, as some might think. But he was telling this young man that you have a heart issue. Something needs to change in the heart for you to have eternal life. He knew that this young man had possessions. It's interesting that he didn't quote the 10th commandment about being covetous to the young man. He didn't even, he didn't even give that commandment to him earlier. He loved him, but he knew that within his heart he was covetous for the things that he possessed. He had much. He was wealthy. And Jesus knew his heart. You see, the law can never save. The law in itself can never save a person. Unless you can keep all ten commandments or keep the whole law of God perfectly. Down to every detail with perfection. Jesus knew man's incapable of being able to do that. The Apostle Paul wrote in chapter 3, verse 20 of Romans. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law is a useful tool to lead a person to a place where they say, you know what, God, I I need forgiveness. I, I look at this law and it condemns me. It puts me in a place there's no way I could have eternal life. There's no way that except that you might forgive me. That's the purpose of the law. But Jesus, in verse 22, but Jesus, we're told, he was sad at this word. And he, he went away. Or excuse me, the rich young ruler was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful. And why did he go away sorrowful? Because he had great possessions. I I think here he is running to Jesus, kneeling down to Jesus saying, you know, tell me how I can have eternal life. And it finishes with him walking away from Jesus Saddened because he had great possessions. Because he knew that he was not going to give it up. He was unwilling to give it up. And you see, there's people like that today. They're unwilling to give up certain things to have Jesus Christ in their life. They're unwilling. And, and that unwillingness usually it's tied to the fact that they love their sin more than they love God. They love sin more than eternal things. If you'll just let me do the things that I like to do and go to heaven, that would be the best. I would love that. What, you know, what a great salvation that would be. You would think that the Lord would have maybe stopped him and said maybe you're Taking this wrong, I'm not saying that it's it's by works or by your duty or by this or that that you could have eternal life in the kingdom. Don't get me wrong. It it, it, it tells us that he let the man go away sad. He went away sorrowful. It says because of his possessions. In other words, Jesus let him go. Though Jesus loved him. And that's what's so that's what's so important. You see, even people that reject Jesus Christ, he says, I love you in spite of your rejection. Did you? Can you remember the days you were rejecting Jesus and he still loved you the same way that he loves you now? Isn't that incredible? I thought he only loves Christians. No, he loves everyone in this world. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's the heart of God. What should this do for us? It should cause us as Christians uh, to look for opportunity. It should stir our hearts up. There are people that you're around every single day wherever you're at that don't know Jesus. And I don't know if you're feeling any urgency. I'm feeling urgent right now about the days we're living in. There's an urgency in my heart about the days that we're living in. That urgency, I'm just going to give it that it's the Holy Spirit that's causing me to feel urgent it I'm not scared about it I'm urgent about it and I believe that there's people that want to know and God would you give me wisdom as you as Jesus as you he, you handled this young man in such a way what an example of of a master at witnessing it but You know, he has the ability to see that young man's heart. And we don't always have that. But God, would you by your spirit give me in when I witness that I might zero in on what the need really is. So that you might give me the eyes to really see where this person's coming from. That I might say the right thing to them. That they might turn to you. And I believe that God will. Ask Him. Be led of Him. Be full of Him. And God will give you those things. He wants to touch people's lives and save them. And He wants to use you and I as that vessel to do that.